Welcome to Straight Edge, the podcast. My name is Clive Allwright, and along with my amazing guests and co-hosts, we're going to be having some brutally honest and sometimes confronting conversations around all things of addictive behavior. Now, as it happens, I've been a hairdresser for 37 years, and during my career, I've met many people just like me that have also struggled in the many different areas of addiction. So our main focus of this podcast is to chat with as many people as possible from the hairdressing, barbering, and media industries, along with some pretty smart people that work in the fields of addiction to get a deeper understanding of why so many of us struggle with the balance of family, careers, health, and the day-to-day pressures of life. So if this sounds like an area you'd like to dive deeper into, make a cup of tea, sit back, and listen to Straight Edge, the podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Straight Edge, the podcast. I'm one of your hosts this morning. My name is Clive, and it is a pleasure to be back in our virtual studio this morning with one of my two angels. Morning, angels. It's <laughs> Louise. How are you, darling? Hello, Charlie. Good. How are you, Clive? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. As you can see, I'm getting in the festive spirit. I've got the, the my Christmas tree behind me. Uh, unlike most of the world that's uh, up in the northern hemisphere that's got snow and ice, we are sweating down here right now. It's going to be 40 degrees here in Sydney. Um, wow. Building up to the Christmas period. And it's certainly getting busier in... Uh, barbershop salons beauty you name it it's building up to that it is very much so everybody's got to get their their hair and makeup done for that lunch <laughs> um for that big for those big couple of days but anyway uh this morning i woke up and i checked my instagram and i i follow russell brand and i saw that he has amazingly got 21 years sober of clean clean of alcohol and drugs on the 13th of December. And he does this amazing, if you haven't seen it, check it out on his Instagram feed. It's really, really good. And it talks about how his own will didn't get him clean and sober. He, how he has a connection to a God of his understanding or a, a spiritual print. He, he runs his life by spiritual principles and guidelines. Um, and he's connected to a community of people, which is really what through the thousands of people that have gone through a program before him has kept him 21 years clean and sober um, away from drugs and alcohol. Uh, it's a really amazing speech. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do when what we wanted to do when we set out this podcast was really try and discover as many different ways possible as you can uh, break free from addiction. Um, we've got, we've been down many various different routes from medical to fitness to whatever. And um, today I've got a, well, I'm very blessed to have this person in my life. I've known this person for 31 years and we've been incredible friends. We've traveled the world together. We've lived together. We know pretty much everything about each other, good and bad, you know. Um, but I want, I want, I've asked him to come on the podcast this morning because he's got a very different, uh, he's got an amazing story. He's an amazing storyteller and I, and I can't wait to, to share this with you, Lou, because he's, he's incredible. It's been an incredible inspiration for me for a lot of my personal and professional life. He's watched my kids grow up and, you know, he's very dear to me, but like all of us, you know, it's not always been roses. It's not always, you know, it's not always been plain sailing. He's really fought his demons and it took me years of knowing Alan to really let him share some of the demons he's had with me. And please welcome to the show this morning, Mr. Alan Earnshaw, how are you, sir? All the way from the US of A. I'm fantastic, Clive. Um, yeah, Good morning, look, Alan. Good morning, Lou. It was uh, great meeting you virtually. You too. Uh, we're um, continents apart. I'm here in yes. the in cold US of A. Uh, but it's an absolute privilege, Clive, that you've invited me on. Um, yeah, just sharing my story. And if my story helps one person, it, it's been it's been well worth it. Yeah. And I'm the biggest fan on, you know, Straight Edge, the podcast. I can't wait for the you know, next one coming out. Number 14's out tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I'll be there. And there are there are so many different types of addictions and there's so many ways of uh, approaches to, to getting free from drugs. But I do feel strongly there's one common denominator. But what I'd like to do, and you've given me the opportunity, is actually share share my story. Uh, and what I want to share is how did I get into drugs? How did I get out of drugs? 
and what's my life been post-strokes. So I'll start at the beginning because I always think that's a good place to, uh, you know, start any story. So yeah, uh, I, I think my, well, I don't know if my accent does give me away of where I'm from. I've got so many different sort of twinges. But originally I'm from uh, the north of England, uh, just uh, north of Manchester, a tiny little town called Rochdale. And, you know, no disrespect, but the best thing about Rochdale is the road out. Um, <laughs> oh, and Lisa Stanfield, by the way. <laughs> Lisa Stanfield. Oh, we're going to start naming celebrities now. I'll go a little bit. You know, yeah, and, Ke- and, and not to mention Kelly Grant, my business partner, is also from yes, Rochdale. Many good people is, came out yeah. of Rochdale. Oh, yeah, yeah but that, you notice they came out of. <laughs> I love it. But no, actually, it's a, a lovely place. But um, yeah, I was born in a, you know, well, you know, lower end of working class. I was born in, you know, a house. It had uh, two rooms downstairs, two rooms upstairs and no inside plumbing. Um, you know, we, we would, you know, share a bath in front of the fire. I know it's hard to believe and I can't believe that I'm that old, but that's yeah. how it was. Um, and... Yeah, so I start having memories from the age of four, which was when my mother left. Um, so I was raised with my grandmother with a, an absent father. Uh, so going through school was really bizarre because back then in the 60s, you know, there wasn't as many divorces. It wasn't just commonplace. I was the only kid in the class that didn't have a mum. And, um, you know, I'll get teased about it. And that's when wow. I started, I, I developed humour as, as a real mask for, for emotional pain. And, you know, kids would come up and go, oh, I heard your mum left. What happened? And I'd say, oh, she went up the store to get a cabbage for dinner and she never came back. <laughs> so what did you do? I said, we opened a tin of peas instead. You know, it was just like that mask of humour. Humour sort of, you know, masked the pain. And, you know, I carried that, you know. I mean, I still think I've got a good sense of humour, but I don't think I'm using it to mask pain or it'd be, you know, a surprise to me. So, you know, I went through, I was a bit of a... um, yeah, I kept, I kept myself to myself as a kid. You know, I wasn't super, super social. I wasn't exactly extremely academic, although I, you know, I'd do the minimum required to, to get the result that I needed to get, and I always got the results. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I stopped going to school at the age of 14, um it's they changed the school system in the uk there was no discipline in my school there were race riots going on so i played truant from 14 my dad found out at 15 so i got a job as an apprentice engineer just that's what i did did that for a year and thought no i don't like having dirty fingernails so um i went into hairdressing and um no one in the family spoke to me for about four years because it just wasn't common for the men to be hairdressers. So, you know, I had that to deal with. You know, there was a certain amount of, like, bullying, but that didn't last long because I fought back. Um, you know, it's, yeah, so I won't, I won't go into, you know, that side of, you know. Was this in but the 70s, Al? Yeah, it was, you know, you know, guys would be lining up to want to beat me up when I finish work. So, you know, I'd take on all comers uh, and usually win. Um, so that was, you know, I mean, the, the violence side of me, I didn't get out of me till my mid-20s, but it was something that I dealt with. But when it came to sort of drugs and alcohol, wasn't even interested in my teens, um, I was just so focused on, on my job. I was a hairdresser. I was going to be the best hairdresser. And I just focused on that. I'd go to the pub with, with my friends, but it didn't face me. You know, I wasn't like getting rolling drunk. It just, I just wasn't interested. And it wasn't until I was 21 that I got exposed. And, you know, I didn't even smoke until I was 21. 
But then when I smoked pot, boy, the floodgates opened. Do you know? And, you know, a lot of people said, you know, you know, marijuana can be the gateway to other drugs. I personally think it is. Well, it was for me because the people getting the pot off was going, whoa, have you tried one of these? I had no idea what it was, but I'd pop a pill and wake up on the couch the next morning, you know, supposed to be at work. Um, so, you know, at 21, I also got my own salon. That was my, 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 my goal. Uh, my father helped me, you know, like get loans and I have my own salon. So, you know, I'm the whiz kid around town. I've got my own salon, going to all the right parties, taking all the right drugs, I guess. But it was from, from no drugs to every drug was a very, very small window. I mean, I was on uppers, downers, lappers, poppers, screamers, you name it, I'd take it. And um, it was just, just crazy. And I wasn't, I wasn't the person I wanted to be. You know, I, yeah. I, I'd almost uh, fulfilled a life goal at 21, which was to get my own salon. Alan, um, what what made you start? What what made you try marijuana? Like what what was the instigator? Friends that I was hanging with. I mean, you know, the, the the music scene that I was into was it wasn't a pot smoking. You know, I mean, it's just it wasn't there. They were like you know little like dance clubs, almost like Northern Soul. And I know people were taking pills for that, but that didn't appeal to me. Mm. Um, but it was the group of friends that I had, you know, when I had the salon, let's go here, someone gets some, you know, you know, and it was the silly stuff where you just got the giggles and, you know, like, yeah, yeah. But it went from that to trying other things, you know, smoking opium, um, chasing the dragon with heroin. I mean, yeah. it basically went from, you know, really light to sort of super heavy, and it was that, oh, they are just do it on the weekends. But the weekend was matching, meeting up on Wednesday, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Wednesday, it's almost the weekend. Let's get going, you know? And then yeah. it's the weekend and then you sort of coming down and then you back up again. So I wasn't the person that I wanted to be. And um, I decided to get out of the salon and get out of town and just try and get a fresh start. Mm. Um, and um, my father convinced me not to sell the salon, but he'd keep it managing it. And I went out to Australia on a 11 month working vacation yeah. and stayed there 30 years. Which is, um, what we, which is what we call doing a geographical, isn't it? It's like the, it's you know, a the, geographical climbing. Exactly. You spoke about that in one of your earlier podcasts. You think, all right, my life's all, you know, not working out. Let me go somewhere else. Fresh you start. You take that with you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's escapism, isn't it? But Absolutely. unless you deal with the the issue, I wasn't I it. wasn't dealing with any of the issues, Lou. You know, I was just yeah. buried more and more. You then got mm. the shame and guilt for what you were doing in doing the drugs, and then you're doing more drugs to get over the shame and guilt of doing the drugs. So, mm. so it's a vicious circle. Absolutely a vicious mm. circle, and you think mm. you know you're burying it, and that's what's so interesting. Uh, listening to your series of podcasts and hearing other people's stories are, are really strong similarities. Mm. So mine, it wasn't realised was that fear, you know, feeling of abandonment from a child. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, my mother left. Her name was never ever mentioned. Yeah. I remember no. I was four years old. I got out. My my nan that brought me up was was there, and I said, "Where's my mum?" And she said, she's not here and she's not coming back. That was it. Bloody hell. That was oh, the explanation. Wow, that just... That's the explanation that I got. That's I had, I had another grandmother who told me it was my fault. That that house wasn't big enough for a second child. You know, you were the straw that broke the camel's back. Oh, my but God. But I would, I would just bury it with humour. But obviously, that that pain's there. That that big hole is there. Uh, Alan, um, so Alan, just sorry to interrupt. One of the things that we forget when we're going through these processes, and I've had the luxury of getting to know you over the years, but 
as hard as it, I mean, it's absolutely traumatic to wake up at four years old and just go through what you've just explained. But how old was your mum at the time when she left? Because she was just a 20. kid too. She was 20, 20, wasn't she? Yeah, so... 22. Oh, 22, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, really, she... I mean, I became a parent at 22, and I didn't know, you know, which way was up at the time. And yeah. we were kids ourselves, right? And that's one of the things that I hear commonly in other podcasts is where they go, well, I look at my mum and dad, and I have to then remind myself, when I was looking up at them as a kid, they were like 19, 20 themselves, you know? And um, like very young parents... I, I I agree. I mean, when you know, I mean, my father was thirty, my mother was twenty-two, and when I hit thirty, I thought, "Wow, at this stage in life, my father was a single parent." You know, and mm. I was just I was at the kind of the the height of my naughtiness, if you like. Yeah, <laughs> the sort of peak in my journey of of drug use. Um, so. Going back, I, I got I got out of England. I went out to Australia, and I just landed on my feet. Uh, you know, scored a great job straight away. Um, worked at a, a beautiful, beautiful salon, and and it was a, a clean a clean slate again. But again, it was um, back into marijuana. Marijuana opened opened the door, so you know I've been exposed to heroin in. Um, in England, but only smoking it. And the heroin in Australia was so expensive, I started injecting it. Um, so I was like, I mean, I used to I used to hate going to the doctors for an injection, and I'd look at it, you know, see it on, I think, oh, I could never stick a needle in my arm. Yeah. And boy, you know, I was the guy with a golden arm, you know, so much money was going out there. Uh, but I was still, you know, and a lot of people say, you know, they were a, fu- a functioning alcoholic or they were a functioning drug user. Uh, and, that, and that was me to a degree. Um, you know, I managed to, you know, like front up, you know, my career was still sort of ticking, ticking along. But I reached that point where it was teetering. You know, I, could, I couldn't continue the way that I was living is, you know, keeping a front, of, you know, of being, a, you know, this hairstylist and have all this going on in the background. So heroin, you know, as I'm sure everyone will say, is a super, super addictive drug. And the, the withdrawal symptoms can be pretty horrendous. So I sought help. And, and I was in a relationship at the time. And, you know, I, I was kind of believing my own publicity, I think. I think myself and my girlfriend, I thought we were Sid and Nancy, you know, from... <laughs> Um, you know it was and it was during that time of heroin chic and you know it wasn't you know it was you know you're getting mixed messages you know oh yeah I'm a rock and roll hairdressing you know badass and you know um, I'm on on the smack on the weekends yeah yeah you know basically you're on the smack every day day. yeah yeah you know you, you sort of nip out between customers and have a quick hit in the restroom there's yeah. no way you can get through, but you're functioning. It becomes medication then. It's not like, you know, you weren't getting a hit for a high. You were getting a hit so you could get through the day. Mm. Um, so I knew I needed help, and um, I went to a, a clinic and um, just just fessed up. And it was uh, – I finished up going on a methadone program, and um, my girlfriend – wasn't ready to do that. Um, so I had to break up with her, which was the most heartbreaking thing I've ever done in my life. Because, you know, I loved her. Mm. But it was survival. Um, I, I'd be, I wouldn't be doing this podcast now I'd have not gone down the route that I chose. So I went on the methadone program, and it is, it's, it's, it's what they call a blind detox. Because I know people are on methadone for years because the the... the they're using it as a crutch. They're not getting to the to the you know what's what's causing the problem. The core. What, I, what, what I was fighting for was I've got to get clean or I've got no career. And if I've got no career, you know, I mean, I'm just going to be a, a, a homeless junkie. Yeah. So my focus was on getting clean and, and and keeping my job. So I went on what's called a blind detox, 
So what's happening is they slowly lower the dose, but they're not telling you what dose you're on. And and I, I was working. I was going to a salon every day. I had a nine o'clock customer in. So I had to get my methadone before I went to work. And the methadone clinic only opened at a certain time. So you literally lined up in front of the clinic until they open. And um, there was suddenly one of the, um, the news stations decided to do like a small documentary on drug addiction in Western Australia and decided to film outside the methadone clinic. <laughs> oh, and you're standing at the front. Yeah, but they, they were very good about it. They only filmed people from the back. So they, you know, they were just doing like a panning shot. But the downside to that was I had a very unique leather jacket with a big white sphinx painted on the back of it. And everyone knew me by this leather jacket. You know, anyone listening to this, they're not speaking to me. You know, every time, I, every time I went to a nightclub, I had this leather jacket with a big white sphinx on it. And there I am on the six o'clock news and I'm thinking, oh, maybe people think there are two of these leather jackets. But <laughs> not, no one pinged me on it and I never got pulled. But that's that's how I it got clean. So, Alan. Alan, but just that didn't get me out of drugs. Alan, just wow. for, for the people that don't know about the methadone program, do you want to just explain the process? So when you line up, you go into the to the clinic. What actually happens? What? It, how does the methadone get administered? It's like it's like a day. It's like you know watching you know like they, they've got like a little hatch and you go and they they give you a little plastic cup with your methadone in and you you drink it in front of them. And then you more or less kind of, you know, open your mouth that you're not carrying any yeah. out there because people do that. They carry it in the mouth, go and spit it in a jar and then reshoot it up their arm. I know, I know, I know. Well, we have a friend that he was on the methadone program that used to get administer the methadone and then she used to put, keep it in her mouth and run out the clinic and spit it into her boyfriend's mouth who was in the car because he was not allowed to be on the program for various different reasons and he needed the methadone yeah yeah i mean it was i mean that whole street was just full of of, of drug dealers uh, on the street outside the methadone clinic i mean what they would do is they would spot you know sample you know you would have to do a urine sample every now and again and any traces of any other drug you'd get a warning and if you kept doing it they'd kick you off the program but I was there because I wanted the program to work for me. Mm. I I needed to be off that drug, mm. uh, and it, it did. That that got me off the you know detoxifying my system. And I was and I remember the day that I've turned up to get my methadone, and the woman said, "Oh, you've finished." I was like, "What?" She goes, "Yeah, you know you haven't had methadone in over a week." And then it, you I, you go into panic stations. You know, your mind's go, well, you know, I'm going to cope. But they're already set up with that. They give you a couple of Valium um, just to take the anxiety away. And I just used those two Valium and that was it. I didn't go looking for Valium. I didn't go looking for anything. But unfortunately, you know, I would still smoke pot. And then pot led into amphetamines. <laughs> amphetamines led into cocaine. I hadn't got to the to the root of, 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 the, of the problem. And um, it was still, I was obviously still staggering through life. I was still very, very much broken. Um, but my, my career went on and my, my career excelled. And the funny thing is how I got off those other drugs was, I know that it was the grace of God. And I'll cover this a little bit. I just stopped. It's almost like, you know, you couldn't say you grew out of it, but the the need to do it, my social scene changed. Uh, and that's very important for people that are, you know, in a group where everyone's using this or using that, you're going to get sucked right back in. And that's the hardest thing to get that break and to get that fresh start. Alan, um, there's a saying that, you are the five people that you ha or you become the five people that you hang around. Would you say that this is correct? 
Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. It's like, you know, the five people that I hang around with now, um, it's yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Mm. You know, my story sort of continued. So I just, you know, those, those, it, heroin was the hard one because it was that like really physical withdrawal. Yeah. You know, the withdrawal symptoms from that drug were, were, were hideous. And so what you were doing was just medicating, uh, not, not just for the high, but that you just didn't have the physical body pains. Um, so I moved through that, but I was still not... You know, alcohol for me has always been one of those things I could just take it or I could leave it. Yeah, okay. But, you know, and I also with with drug use, I wasn't so much a, a sort of a, a closet user of it then. You know, but if, you know, I would seek it out. I would seek groups out that would be, you know, getting on it, as we say. But it the, the need for it just diminished mm. as I moved through and. and then I thought I I'm always got free completely from 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 any sort of substance use. Um, I I just sort of evolved out to it. But again, I put it down to being the, the grace of God that took those needs from me, and I really, really one hundred percent focused on my career. So, um, Alan, where where would you say? Like I I believe that we all have a rock bottom. Yeah. Where would you say that was for you? My, oh, I know what, what that that was, you know, when I was, you know, at, at the height of the heroin addiction. Okay, yep. And, um, well, uh, yeah, I, I know exactly where I was. Was I, Yeah, I used to put my stash in the dishwasher. Okay. Could never use the dishwasher, you know, because okay. that's where yeah. I hid my stash. Yep. Came in one day from washing uh, washing my car, and my girlfriend was running the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that was it. I thought I'm done. I'm doomed. Do you know, yeah. you know, yeah. no more money, no, no drugs. Is how you know that that was it. You know, yeah. I raced against the wall. Um, that that's when I sort of sought help. I, okay. I just strep again when i when i got clean from heroin you you would still see a counselor um which i did for a period of time mm -hmm. just to make sure you're not sort of slipping back and um the counselor had said look not many people do what you've just done mm. is get completely clean would i be interested in you know doing you know some like counseling for them to help other people and I went, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be anywhere near this clinic or yeah. anywhere near heroin. Mm. If we're yeah. done, I'm done. I'm we're out done. of here. I'm gone. But not knowing that that's come back in lead at lead alive, that that is what I do. <laughs> yeah. um, it just wasn't, it wasn't the season, as I said. Mm. So we're, we're in different seasons. And I got to be honest, I would not trade those experiences for anything mm. because the help in recovery that recover, recovered alcoholics and recovered drug users can offer to those people that are going through it is invaluable. Mm. You know, I would find it very, very hard to, you know, have a serious counsellor counselling me through, through drug addiction that hadn't been through drug addiction, mm. you know, because you, you're free from judgment then. Yeah. So, so, so go on, Clive. I'm just sitting here listening to you talk, right, and I've got, and obviously I didn't know you back in the, the heroin days, um, and my mind is just replaying how we first met. And, um, you know, I didn't, I had no idea you'd been through the methadone program. Obviously, I mean, I do now, but back then I didn't. And I remember it was Christmas. It was about this time of year. My girlfriend at the time worked in a hairdressing salon with you, and she invited me after work for Christmas drinks. And I turned up at the place, both from England, made the connection. We had plenty of drinks. Next thing you know, you find your tribe, you find the connection. And I was 
bang out of control at the time. And I'm like, right, do you want to come and get some speed with me? Do you want to come and get some pills with me? And the next thing you know, you and I went off on a journey on another direction with amphetamines and ecstasy. And that was, I mean, it ran its course, right? Until, like, I mean, I mean, I've never admitted this to many people, but, you know, you and I went went down to some dark places, you know, Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to speak about this now and uh but like jim where was a time when we were both shooting up amphetamines and um and ease and uh we got to the point one day where we were so desperate in sydney we went into a pub and we bought two syringes off to of a stranger in a bar not knowing what was in them and went and shot him up and uh, up it back at your flat and um when i think fuck like you know the, we're lucky to be alive and absolutely you know and wow. you know like it's we went to some dark place and what we didn't know at the time was we, we kept doing these geographicals when we were in perth i was like fuck i gotta get out of here because we're going in a, a thing and then you know and then and then it was sydney then it was then it was la and you know we found our tribe we found a you know a good connection together and you know we we had this balance of professional working but complete fucking debauchery like it was you know it was off the scale when it comes to most people would be mortified to 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 think that what the levels that we got up to and i'm very what am i but how amazing look at you guys now well yeah that's the thing and so i'm sorry i just jumped in there but i just had a massive replaying of of the time and i can i can recall certain times when you and i were together and we were, I mean, fucking hell, we went to some dark places. We went to some amazing places, um, but we were just hanging on by our fingernails, weren't we, for a lot of it? We were. We were, Clive. You know, and again, you know, that's what I think is is so great for you, Clive, in, in sharing your testimony with other people, that there's always hope there, mm-hmm. that yeah. you can always come through that other side. Yeah. Um, and... You know, for, for me, yeah, I, I'm amazed, you know, and people that know me where I live now will be, you know, when they hear this podcast, I think there might be a few raised eyebrows. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be it needs to be out there. You can't recover in secret. There's no secret. Uh, you, you just, and, and you did it in one of your podcasts, you just got to surrender it. And, and, you know, I mean, Finishing my little stories, yeah, I went through, you know, I know when I met you, Clive, I was an avid cyclist. I used to cycle race. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, and then that was, uh, you know, filled my time in. I know you do a lot of, uh, you know, ocean swimming, you know, yeah. but it's, it's sort of a, a, a healthy thing. And in life, I, I don't think we give up anything without having something to replace it. Correct. Mm. You know? Just are we replacing that with something that's that's healthier for us? But that's always been my thing. Has always been like cycling, you know, working out in the gym, and I'm thankful for that with the age that I'm getting to. That I've always been able to maintain some level of fitness. But go, picking up on that, um, you know, that that drug story, I, I, you know, I managed to, you know, just let it all go and, and focus purely, you know, on on my career. Um, I was good at what I did. I know I was, unless there were a lot of people around lying that I was, yeah. <laughs> that I was good. And um, then I got called in, you know, I've been with the same brand for 30, 33 years and got called in for a catch-up meeting to say, um, your role no longer exists. You've worked your last day and we'd like your computer and uh, your phone back. So, I mean, I was just chopped to my socks of like, wow. Um, so I guess this is, you know, and I wasn't too amazed because I thought, oh, you know, I'll get some results to see. Um, but what I didn't do, you know, had that been like 10 years, 20 years before, I'd be straight into, you know, find some drugs and numb the pain. Uh, but, but this time I didn't. And, um, I had a complete um, change in in um, approach to life. 
I like was an, gra- an epiphany. Yeah, an epiphany. Mm. Right? Because what happened was, you know, well, you know, this is going out to a lot of media and hair people. And, and when you, you know, you're in your industry and you're doing well, you've got a thousand and one friends. And the minute that that's taken from you, and you can no longer help anyone, you find your friends are pretty thin. And yeah, I learned a, a, a really hard lesson there is people are not loyal to you. They're loyal to their need of you. Yeah. And when that changes and what you can provide them with, you've got no worth and you've got no value. Yeah. So what happened for me post my hairdressing career, I didn't go back into drugs. I really had a, a look at myself, but I had a, a massive realization because people wouldn't return phone calls emails, text messages, my stock value dropped through the floor. And this is when you were living in America, right? The, yes. You've come from down, Australia down, to America. It was down in Los Angeles, yeah. yeah. I, I, I relocated to the USA about 10 years ago. It's more than that, only 15 years ago, to be honest. Uh, I was a corporate relocate. Um, in fact, I'd had my green card all weeks when I got let go. Um, wow. I'd lost... Lost my Australian residency waiting for the green card. So now I had a green card and an ability to work in the US indefinitely with no work to do. <laughs> so so uh, I was down in LA, couldn't get a call back, couldn't, couldn't, uh, just could not get back into the hair industry. Um, and I had the epiphany is that you don't realize that God is all you need until you realize God's all you've got. Yeah. I was rapidly running out of, well, I'd run out of friends, was running out of money, um, and I was running out of options. Um, and I had some friends that um, live up where, where I live now in the Pacific Northwest, said, I'll come and stay with us, see if you can get a fresh start. Uh, and that changed my life uh, completely. Um and I, I moved up here, and they brought me to their church. And I was already leaning that way. I always had a very, very strong spiritual aspect um, and, and looked at many different religions all the way. And um, they were all like, I was throwing one after the other in the bin because that doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense. But there had to be something far, far greater than I was. And um, so many people call different things, you know, higher power, um, the God that I identify with. But it was God. Uh, And it was my personal relationship with God. And then that changed my whole approach. And the the church that I came to ran a program and still do run a program uh, that deals with sobriety. And um, it's called Celebrate Recovery. And I think you guys will probably put something in the show notes. Sure, absolutely. And it's not just about substance addiction. It's yeah. what we say, hurts, habits, and hang-ups. It can be anxiety, be an eating disorder. It can be an addiction to pornography. Yeah. It can be being codependent. And through the church here, we actually run programs and, and, and this is a relatively, it's not, it's not a huge church, but we, we get up to 350 people per, per Friday evening. Wow. That's break off to small groups. So I facilitated a men's group there for several years, which I thought was really, really um, crazy when I've been asked when I was free from heroin, would you like to get into, you know, some, some help and, you know, counselling others, and I went, absolutely not. Um, And then before I know it, I'm spending every Friday night with a group of 10 men uh, walking through each situation. But what that done for me is that to to get free from any kind of addiction, I don't care whether it's drugs, I don't care whether it's hard drugs, soft drugs, prescription drugs, wine, beer, pornography, gambling, no one can on their own. Mm. You've got to surrender that. It yeah. takes got, a village. 
I can't do this. And the number of times that I've listened to your podcast that one of your guests on it have said, I got to the point where I just shelled out, oh, God help me, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And you only have to run through your own footage to how many guests have actually said that. They yeah. still ended. And I know, you know, society is like, people, oh, I don't want to say this or I don't want to say that. Who cares what society says? Because it's all to do with your relationship with God, your creator. End of. Um, and, and it's there. And, you know, I mean, I read the Bible every day. And Clive and I, we, 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 don't, we don't laugh about it in a cynical way. But we look at each other when we, we mention, who would have thought we'd be at this phase where we pray every day? We yeah. pray every day. Do you know? Yeah. Because that's, that's, that to me, that's the keys to freedom is surrender. I can't do it on my own. And watch God move in your life. It's interesting, isn't it? Which quite I've, I've heard people talk about me and will speak to me and they've said, Clive, it's a fucking miracle that you managed to stop drinking. It's, and it's, it's a miracle that you, you, you got off the gear and all that stuff. And, and I agree with them because my left to my own will took 30 years for me to, to from starting to, to eventually stop in. And my own free will didn't make that happen. It was eventually when I put my hands up and I went, I surrender. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. And as you heard with Pete on another episode, God help me now. And, you know, and in the 12 step program that I'm in, you know, we talk about it as being a higher power. And that's because there's many different people from all different religions and you don't want to discriminate, you know, and it's a higher power of, it's funny because I, I was talking to my sponsor the other day and I said, you know, it's taken me a while to get this spiritual program. And he said, it's a God of your own understanding. And he goes, and in my case, case, Clive, he goes, it's a God, not of my understanding. He says, because it's so powerful, I can't even, can't even grasp how big this is. And I was like, yeah. And so the fact that we, as we say, Alan and I, we speak every Sunday, uh, we catch up. It's one thing that's, really a non-negotiable for us is we have to we've had a friendship for 30 years and we say whoa who'd have thought out of all from going to that pub in Redfern and 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 the dark fucking places that we were at that we start our day with prayer and medita- meditation because it is a miracle that we got to this point and something got me to this point and I cannot ignore that anymore when I came into recovery I read the 12 steps and I went well, I'm not doing the God thing, and I and I I, re, I refuse to admit that I've got a disease because disease is something that my mum died of, and many other of my friends have died of diseases, and this is from my own doing. This is not a disease that I just caught or whatever. And then Eden Sassoon mapped out to me: it's a disease. It's a disease in who I am, right? And have that removed from me is a miracle, right? <laughs> it's kind of Sorry for rabbiting on there, mate. I thought, no, it, was my, I thought it was my podcast for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate. But yeah, it's a big part of our lives. Um, it is, Clive. And it, like, you know, what I was saying there, you, you, can't, you can't reach sobriety in, in private. You can't sneak off and get sober. It needs yeah. to be brought out. You need to confess it. It's confess it. And that's why small groups are so effective that people, you go around the group and everyone gets five minutes. Now, I never in my life, my Friday nights would be taken off with like bars and nightclubs, right? My Friday nights are sitting with a group of grown men that will cry their eyes out because they're shocked themselves that they're confessing it. But when it's out, it's out. It's as I say, it's in. It's out in the light. It's not in the darkness. And in the light, it can be dealt with. But you can't. You can't get sober on your own. You need a group of people that will support you. Uh, lots of different programs. They have, you know, accountability. You know, you have a sponsor. Alan, can you tell us more about Celebrate Recovery and um, and what it is you do with that? Yeah. Um, Definitely. Well, it's, you know, it's run 
through uh, church. Uh, the program itself's been in existence uh, 25, 26 years ago. Uh, came out of a church called uh, Saddleback Church in Orange County. Um, and it's based around the 12-step program, that there's no doubt. Uh, but it's a Christ-driven program. It's very, very specific about, you know, which God, which is God, um, that, we're, that we're talking about. There's no mistake there. But uh, people come, and like I said, we can get up to about 260 people. And the, the, the evening split distinctly into two. Uh, you're welcome there with open arms, there's no doubt about it. Um, we do a meal often as people arrive. It's like $3, or if you don't have $3, then you're getting a free dinner. Um, then there's usually there's either a testimony, so it's someone getting up, they're talking about you know how they deal. So you're in quite a big auditorium. And then after that, we break into small groups. So if it was your first night there, you'd do a program called uh, Celebrate Recovery 101, which is just a small group letting you know what the program is, what the program isn't. You know, there's no one there that's going to cure you. It's not coming through human hands, that's for sure. But that just gives you an idea of which group you might want to join, whether it's codependency, whether it is substance, whether it's anger and control. But you would then go the second time, you'd then break off into small groups. So if you've been going, you know, your second time, it'd be the same thing. It'd be a meal on arrival, testimony or a message, and then break into small groups. And the small groups have only got about 10 to 12 people in them. So... And um, what I say to people is come at least four times before you form an opinion and uh, people just keep coming back because it's beneficial. It's helping them discuss. And again, there's, there's no judgment. Uh, we're not there. We don't do a book review. You know, it's all oh, you should do this or you should do that. It's, it's not us. It's allowing you to. As, as Clive and I were saying, it's just surrender. Just say, look, I can't deal with this. So that's basically the program. I would say 99% of the volunteers that work that program have, have been through some form of dependency or another. So you follow uh, people that understand what, you, what you're going through. Um, Al, I think that's fabulous that you've got the different people from the different uh, recovery, like you said, codependency, gambling, bits and pieces, all in the same room. It doesn't matter what you're recovering from. No, that that's right, Clive. It, it you know everyone's got something mm. going on. Um, you know the times we live, you know people are just anxious and they don't know what they're anxious mm. about. Um, so everyone's in the same room to start off with. Then when you break off into the small groups in the second part of the program, you're in a much more intimate group. Because, you know, when I say to people, oh, we get up to, you know, like around 260 people, they're going, well, that's a big, mm. small group, you know. Um, you'd be waiting a couple of hours to get your five minutes worth can I, um Can I ask a question? Um, and I, I'm, I'm not going to get specific here about different organisations or whatever. Um, I just want to touch on the 12 steps. What, what do the 12 steps, without going across all 12 but basically what do they encompass well i don't i'd actually throw that to to clive who's actually going going through that i mean you know the the same in all the programs sure but clive I mean, do you want to sort I mean, of chip no, sir, in I on that really one go into great de detail um no, but, but, no. but basically what it is your first step is is to put your hands up and to admit that you're powerless right um and to say yeah. you can't no longer do this anymore and then you go through a series of, 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 of steps where you work with a sponsor and you look at the past and some of the, um, the carnage, the errors of your past, and you make amends to that to, or, or where it's safe to do so. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey of self-discovery. And it doesn't matter if it's drugs, alcohol, food, whatever it is, there's always the same yeah. underlying thing that you, you know, and then you get to the 12th step where that's actually helping someone else. So that's when you would sponsor someone else and take them under your wing and you would go through the steps with them. 
but it's mm-hmm. is a general framework of it but it's just yeah. you know it's about being authentic with yourself being honest with yourself uh, having integrity um not not um basically you're i mean i'm trying it's funny because we're sort of being put on the spot i'm like i'm trying to pluck stuff out of the air but it is a journey and some people go through the steps very quickly when they first get into recovery um like it depends on your sponsor and you can go right and you'll do and you can do them at multiple times throughout your life so like for instance they recommend you do the 12 step every 10 years because your life is different you know and it's different changes so uh, I personally, with my sponsor, uh, I've done them a lot slower. And like I've just, for instance, just completed step four, which I wrote over a year ago when I was back in the UK caring for my father. And it's been so powerful for me to read and go through that fourth step with my sponsor now a year later and to see the progress that I've made and to chart that. And it's funny because when Louis was talking on a previous episode about journaling, I journaled every day when I was in England putting my mm. thoughts down and, and and by having that you know we say in every episode opposite to addiction is connection it keeps me accountable you know i go to the minutes and it's funny because when i as i mentioned earlier when i when i first went into recovery i'm like right i'm not i'm, I'm an atheist i'm not doing the god thing and then what happened is is that the my particular group that i go to is held in a church which is next to the pub called the Royal. And I remember going on the first night and I'm thinking, well, if I don't like it, I'll just go next door to the pub. And I've, ne- <laughs> and I've never been in that pub. right? But one of the things is, is that I get, and there's something magical that happens, right? It's like my, my, my brain is bubbling away on the stove throughout the week. And I get to Friday, which is my witching hour when I'd like to have a, a, a drink or whatever. And I walk into that church and I, it's funny because I just didn't even notice it as a church at the beginning. It was just, a, it was a hall, right? It's got stained glass windows and they set, I set up the chairs and, and I'm like, I'm not doing the God thing, not doing the God thing. Don't, don't agree with that. And then I'm like, fuck, I come to a church every Friday. I've never been to a church as much in my life, right? <laughs> and it's like, there's something making me come here. And then what happened is at the end of it, and it's not, it's only just because the location of my meeting that I go to on a Friday is in a church. They're all held in different places. But, you know, I'm like, you know what, Clive, look where you're sitting. I mean, I remember talking to my mate the other day and I said, for the first four weeks I came here, I said, I remember sitting in this room and designing this church hall as a club. And the bar was going to go over there. The DJ booth was going to go over there. And, you know, now this was going to be, that's how mental my mind was. I was still in active addiction even though i was not drinking anyway but there is definitely that that has gradually come into my life in more and more capacity and i cannot ignore it anymore and and Mm. by the time i leave it's funny because when i walk out of that room an hour and a bit later i walk past that pub and it's dark when it's it's kind of sundown as i'm going in and that's the time when i'd like to go in and when i come out i see it as it's darkness not that it's anything wrong Mm. we're going to a pub but I'm just like, well, that's pressed the reset button for me now. Something's been removed from me while I've been in that room that gives me the compulsion to drink is what I'm trying to say. Wow. But, um, yeah, it's not me that's doing it. It's something that makes yeah. me walk there, right? And, I'm, and I, when I get yeah. in there, I'm like, thank God I'm here. And just listen to the words <laughs> I've just said. Thank God I'm here because I'd rather be here than somewhere else. Mm. Alan, uh, um, with with what you do within the church – and mm. you've got 260 plus people coming in. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, and, and you're having, you know, these in-depth conversations with people, do you, do you find a common, is there a common uh, th- thread amongst everybody? Is there, is there something missing? Do you find? I mean, they say the opposite of addiction is connection, and that's one thing yeah, that you're doing yeah. now is really you're a connector. You're, I mean, you're connecting with self, you're connecting with God, and you're connecting with people, and you are facilitating mm-hmm. all of this, um, which is it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's that you, that's a really interesting question because. I don't discuss with them what's going mm-hmm. on in their life because quite frankly, it's none yeah. of my business. Um, a, a common thread. I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. there is, 
I don't think you could say, oh, well, you know, that that's that's what's going wrong. Everyone's got their own complex series of difficulties that mm. they're going through. So, I mean, all we're, all we're connecting them with, I, I don't say, I don't say we're, we're connecting them we're just freeing them to 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 more or less confess it, you know, bring it mm. out in the open, but you know, just create that safe yeah. environment yeah. to do that, right? Confidentiality is mm. is huge. You know what what happens in that small group of ten or twelve is not discussed no. anywhere else. Um, that's that's the, yeah. that's the utmost. Um, it's it's people, you know, having when they're talking, they've got the, you know, the sort of allotted time. No one can mm. talk over them. It, it's it's just letting them get it off the chest. So what we're doing is creating that environment, and I believe it's a, we're creating an environment that c- God can yeah. do His yeah. work. Um, and it's so funny because you were saying, you know, my job is to connect. Um, I play another role in our church here where I actually work on the Connect team at, at our oh, Sunday wow. services, which is far bigger than the mm-hmm. 300. I mean, a church over a given weekend would probably have about 3,000 wow. people would, uh, would, go through a, would go through an average uh, service. My role is to be on the lookout for for newcomers. You know, if people you know come wandering in and are a bit oh or struck, is to go and mm-hmm. connect with them. And uh, you know, I get a lot. The, the the biggest comment I get is, "Wow, this is a really big church." And I say, "No, it isn't. It's a really small mm-hmm. village. And if you knock on it enough doors, you'll find some really mm-hmm. good neighbors." That's beautiful. Um, so it, it it's breaking down. You know, and it's church in general, like Clive was saying, we'd be the last two characters you would go, oh, those guys that go to church. Um, you know, you can't you can't stereotype no. it. To me, what faith is, is about my personal relationship with mm. God. You know, it, it's unshakable. Things happen in my life. You just go, no way in a million years could mm. that happen. You know, people people talk about coincidence. There's no such thing. Right? It's not, oh, you think of someone, they turn up. I mean, if, if it was coincidence, I'm sure someone would have worked some like, analytics out of how that's yeah. going to, you know. Um, I It's what I call a, a wink from God. You know, God's saying, yeah, there's something going on here. You know, act on it. Um, so... You know, I, I sort of get up, I pray, I, I, you know, I pray to be guided through the day. And, um, you know, I've probably never had less in my life, but I've never been happier. You know, I don't have sort of anxiety. I don't have fear. Um, I don't find a need to escape. You know, we, we it's come up a few times on the podcast is like getting out of your head. I actually quite enjoy being in my own and being head. Being comfortable, <laughs> uh, that's, absolutely that's comfortable. Thing, I uh, of course it is. Of course it is. But again, you know, I mean, I don't want to come over as like you know, Pastor Allen or something. You know, I'm not. I'm not a pastor, but you know, I, I have. I have read a lot of the Bible, and you know, when it comes to that, you, it's not a book you can just pick up and read through it on your own. You know. Uh, you'd be more confused than ever. But, you know, there there are passages and it says, you know, peace beyond all understanding. You know, and I'm, you know, in a a position, I I should theoretically be sweating bullets about what does tomorrow hold for me. But I'm not. I'm in complete peace and contentment um, because I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. So... It, it's it's you know there's a spiritual aspect to recovery without a doubt um my my terminology for that is 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 god now i was just going to say i use the term all the time when i look back on my past and i say there but for the grace of god go i you know it wasn't like i, I would, or, you know i i just got lucky 
no, I, you know, I, I think there was divine in, intervention in so many areas of yeah, my me life. Too. So, yeah, Alan, you were um, you were with a big uh, global corporation, and then you stopped, um, and you were involved. Uh, you are involved um, in the church. You also do wood turning. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Uh, it's not so much wood turning, which you do on a lathe. It's it, it's um, fine woodworking. Um, it, it's again, you know, I mean, I'll, I will make something and look at it and go, gee, I'm a hairstylist, not a master craftsman. Uh, but it's a God given gift. I, I sincerely believe it. But yeah, I do sort of really fine woodworking. Um, jewelry, well, you name it, it's I can amazing. make it. You do some beautiful um, furniture, so anything from fine, fine, fine jewelry boxes, furniture, built ins. Um, yeah, and you know, I've got a, a, a wonderful wood shop up here. I live pretty much off grid. Um, in fact, just to get an internet connection, I've come into church so that we've got stronger signal. I can talk to you guys. Um, I live on a on a six uh, six acre ranch. I have a wood shop. Virtually no cell signal, no internet wow. connection. Uh, it's uh, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, w- just have wet well water, so we're not on mains. I so, love it, mate. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how you put that. Obviously, I've had the, the privilege of seeing your 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 skill with the wood, mate, and the furniture and the beautiful things that you've made, and that precision that you had as a hairdresser. Um, is now transcended into into the most beautiful pieces of art and we'll put some links on we're going to we'll be talking to about organizing your online shop Al, and it's going to go <laughs> um, oh okay yeah 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 that, that'd, be, that'd be it's interesting, interesting Lou, yeah. while alan was talking i had a little bit of think about the 12 steps the 12 steps teaches you a way to live right it teaches mm-hmm. you a new way to live we went through up until i got involved with a with a 12 step program i had fear anger resentment to everything and everyone and um uh and i lived i came from a place of fear which is why i took the the, the alcohol and the drugs and i was so connected to people places and things right as where the 12 step program teaches me to let go of all of that fear and trust in a higher power and learn to become a, a better way, a better person and live a better life. And that's why it's a whole mode of living that I live by now. And uh, so, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I just asked that question because, um, you know, there's a lot of people who live to, uh, who listen to the podcast, who, um, you know, are involved in, in a various assortment of programs, but then there's also people who mm-hmm. um, listen to the podcast who have no idea. Yeah, that's um, right. Absolutely. So I just wanted, to, you know, I I didn't want to mm. dig, dig yeah. deep. I just wanted yeah. to touch on it just to have a little sure. bit of an understanding of what um, of what that looks like. I love it. Well, we've obviously mm. we're coming out close to time, but we have, you know, we've definitely discovered another way of um, obviously either do the twelve step. There's the medical route that Andrew talked spoke about. We've had various different ways of overcoming any kind of addiction and Al it's been amazing talking to you once again and understanding your journey is there anything you want to say before we we sort of wind this up so Clive before we close I wondered if I could just share a story of well I consider it uplifting and good news and hope it can give other people hope of things that may be But in 2018, I got a message through Facebook from a gentleman that claimed to be my half-brother. And it turned to be so. And when I inquired whatever happened to our mother, he told me that she lived around the corner from him and he did her shopping every day. So I asked him if I could send a note, would he print it and take it to her immediately? as I didn't want her spending another moment with any kind of guilt, shame or regret. So I wrote a note and he sent it to her and six weeks later I was sitting in her lounge room back in the UK. So after 58 years from last seeing my mother, we were reunited. And that would have to be one of the most uh, uplifting things that has ever happened to me. And I hope that can just be a little bit of inspiration to people that feel hopeless or things may never never happen. Uh, that there's always hope, always hope. 
So Clive, I want to thank you for having invited me on. I hope if anything that I shared could be, you know, motivational to people get out of whatever addiction that they're in or, or seek help, uh, then it's all been worthwhile. So in leaving you, Clive, I love you, brother. Thank you for having invited me on. And uh, may you have much success in, in spreading the word of sobriety. I just want to say it was a beautiful interview with Lou and Alan and myself. And I want to thank Alan for being so brave, so vulnerable and sharing such a personal story that, you know, has been a big part of my life for many years. And, uh, and uh, I'm very proud to call him my friend because to come out of where he's been and to get to the point where he is now and have such peace and calm in his life um, from having the very pointy, shiny end of our industry sort of taken away and um, and then rebuild his life from there and rebuild it under a different structure um, and have that, that faith that he's got uh, to, which is, to which he lives his life by today. So thank you very much. You're listening to Straight Edge, the podcast, and wherever you are, we wish you a very happy holidays.